Welcome to the Kingless Generation, a podcast on the deep history of class struggle, paleo parapolitics, and the demonology of capital. I'm your host, Fergal Schmudlock. We've had a bit of a hiatus here, I apologize, and uh, I think what I'm going to do is just get over myself here and uh, break out of that little framework of a quick run through world history at the beginning because I was stuck on the post-war to the present, if I'm being honest. Uh, I was thinking of maybe doing some pinch-on novel or something, something about the birth of the internet, DARPA, counterintelligence, big smart rocks and brilliant pebbles and things like this, perhaps. But uh, there's people that have done that much better than I, and it's just not where I can give you the... uh, a unique kind of uh, podcast, right? So uh, I think for now I'm going to leave that. I'm sure I will have my own uh, unique insights whenever I do get to covering these things, as I'm sure I will, but I think what we're going to do, I'm going to go ahead and get over myself here and just get into roaming freely around all different kinds of literature, intellectual history, philosophy, religion, spirituality, whatever, uh, things that I know uh, that are related to class struggle, relation to production, etc. Right. So, uh, on that note, uh, speaking of the theme of this podcast, and also speaking of things that uh, I'm very interested in, but if, am not the best uh, authority to to guide you through, um, David Graeber is coming out with this posthum- posthumous book uh, with one of his. Uh, his collaborator, um, David Wengro, is it? And he just went on The Dig uh, with Dan Denver. So uh, check that podcast out. Uh, you can get a bit of an upgrade maybe to, to James C. Scott, it seems. James C. Scott, they, they give a shout out to Against the Grain, my old favorite. And they were one, some of the people that he was talking to. Wengro was one of the experts, in arche- one of the archaeologists that he was talking to. Right. Um, If anything, you know, you might walk away with uh, too neat and clean identification of the grain state of of grain itself with class society. Of course, those things are not equal. Uh, I think that James C. Scott is also at pains to uh, say that, you know, you can get it out of of that book that you you have uh, agriculture, you have grain before the the state. But in uh, this new book, The Dawn of Everything, I think it is, um, 
one of one thing that I really I would like to say here is that to add, you know, is in Ukraine around the same time as Mesopotamia, 3000 BCE, 4000 BCE, is it? You have very large cities that no one was really comfortable calling cities yet because the sort of archaeological definition of a city required that you had to have inequality and you had to have hierarchy for that to be called a city. So, but what you just, you have these enormous communities where all these people are producing in common and everyone lives in what for 3000, 4000 BCE is an elite dwelling. Palaces for the people, as the host, Astro Taylor, said. This is uh, another great example. Uh, and then the other thing is sort of that it's a common story that Wengro was sort of saying, we're, all, we're still stuck in the Bible. We're stuck in the Bible, which, yeah, I take that. Uh, in imagining that there's an original good state and then there's a bad state that we fell into, and isn't it more helpful? It might be more helpful, uh, although this too is just a story you're telling yourself, uh, to focus on the aspect which I was... Uh, for, so Nick Estes... Uh, in his book, Our History is the Future, right? He talks about how indigenous Americans are already post-apocalyptic. And so they hold the keys to living uh, going forward, right? Um, and of course, also they held the keys of Iroquois Confederacy. Seeing the Iroquois Confederacy was actually really what inspired the so-called founding fathers of the United States to try democracy, and then they retroactively just said that, oh, yeah, we're imitating Greece, Athens, or something, right? Uh, no, they actually, they, they saw this, and they also received, we have all kinds of documentation, and this is in the Wengro Graeber book, uh, of the uh, uh, Native American thinkers, right, leaders who debated Europeans at the time on the great demerits of European hierarchical, unequal society, right? Um, but those people, actually, their narrative about themselves, which in oral history, right, which, as in many cases, has turned out to match up very well with archaeology, in fact, their story about themselves was that they had been part of a very hierarchical empire, but they overthrew it. They had a revolution, they successfully created an e egalitarian, decentralized society. So, as I said in episode one, full communism has been achieved before many times in human history. It can be achieved again. It'll probably have to be achieved again multiple times. Maybe it'll get overthrown, right? You, it is a constant struggle. Freedom is a constant struggle. Uh... Authentic uh, community is a constant struggle, and there's no end to it. There's no there's no apocalypse. There's no perfect eschaton, where everything is brought to perfect knowledge. Everyone finally gets it. There's a finally. It's almost like the a certain kind of boomer conspiracy theorist would would sort of imagine that uh, we're gonna finally blow the lid off of this, and all those people that didn't thought didn't believe it they'll they'll believe it and they'll know that the truth and 
and then everybody everything will be somehow fine forever no no that's not that's not how it works it's gonna have to be just constant struggle that's part of being alive that's part of being alive you know that gives you that's almost the more um more compatible with the uh, the core assumptions of buddhism right although that gets me into my topic for today which is actually revisionist buddhism revisionist buddhism i think buddhism is a religion that is often uh since the early modern period has been demonized but not nearly as much as islam interestingly it's more islam that has been demonized and buddhism is sort of actually really uh fetishized in some ways and and really turned into this thing that it usually at most times and places it, it is not right um which is a religion that is somehow really authentic and people really always live by their the teachings is one way to put it so and that's not the case you, you no world religion so here's a paradox here's a here's a proposal that i have uh every world religion is in some way a response to class society a response to class society which um you know there were there's there was domination there there really is seems to like there there was such a thing as a slave society so before agriculture before any kind of uh tributary uh grain state right you have in the archaeological record uh slave societies where people are captured and kept as slaves and so on right but even those uh get overthrown fairly quickly and that's that's another kind of um there are oral histories among indigenous americans about overthrowing states like that so uh but nevertheless nevertheless we are part of something today that has grown there is a trend uh certainly that i, I think you can still say there's some kind of trend of growing inequality growing hierarchicalization that is crescendoing obviously now uh right up until 300 years ago two-thirds of humanity was still living outside the state and now today we have basically uh biosignature ids being forced on people in the countryside in india and uh all kinds of micro loans which are liquidating peasants you know it's really those peasants um marx even was was becoming conscious of this at the end of his life that maybe actually the peasants are even more of a revolutionary class than the industrial workers and the rulers of our world today seem to wholeheartedly agree there are leaders uh, at the world uh, economic forum who say precisely this you know some i saw a, a video of a, a guy uh, on twitter I, i found a guy on twitter who uh he was had been the head of the gates foundation and he'd been the head of a, you know other things and he was basically saying uh the the green africa initiative or whatever something that they're many one of many their projects the goal is to get rid of peasants to have no peasants that is people who live and get most of their subsistence directly from the land so they don't need money right uh and they don't need class society they don't need to have a different relationship to production than anyone else so 
And this is the insight of Maoism. This is why Maoism is pretty pretty interesting, isn't it? Uh, you have these, and that is the source of some of the um, resistance that is going on in the world today, places like the Philippines, India. Uh, so I saw somebody that probably doesn't want me saying his name all over the place, but uh, posting Marx's uh, notes on indigenous societies around the world. And it's in German, English, Greek, Latin, and it's just very schematic kind of notes, right? So it's kind of tragic that that's sitting in that form. You know, somebody really ought to go through and sort of at least turn it into prose. You know, we can't all be, we can't be Engels and sort of like know what was in Marx's heart to the degree that Engels did. But uh, still, I would think you could turn it into prose or something, and I think this would be a great kind of hint. Uh, although we have, we have all the hints we need um, in the masses, in the people. Knowledge accumulates in the masses. That's where. So, uh, and that's happening today. It will always happen. It will always happen. Uh, of course, now we have the Internet to uh, sort of make the masses uh, share their knowledge and make sure that that knowledge gets uh, diverted into the least productive uh, and least em empowering and liberating channels, isn't it? So, oh well. So I'm going to try to, <laughs> I, I confess I have been editing out a lot of ums and ahs and pauses and things. Uh, if I lose my way, I will, I will maybe stop recording, but I'm going to try to just get over myself here and actually just make the podcast easily. And yeah, so I apologize for any roughness that may arise from that, uh, but uh, bear with me. That's Perhaps there will be wisdom in the ums and ahs. So my preposition, uh, all major world religions arise from some reaction to class society, the, the contradictions of class society, uh, right? Uh, so Abrahamism has this thing where you're imagining, oh, there's a good ruler out there. You know, there might be a bad ruler here, and he's mean to us and stuff, but there's a good ruler out there somewhere, and he is actually the one that uh, we, we should really follow. And, and he has rules to make sort of society... Uh, go well and have the strong uh, treat the weak well and the weak serve the strong and and make society run smoothly and then you have sort of uh, oh there's a rebel actually maybe the 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 god that created the world is is evil um, because and that ha that arises right with the giant ancient empires when you really get a new level of extraction isn't it a new level of extraction of slaves and so on uh, oh, I forget. There was, I was reading recently some estimates of sort of how many slaves the Roman Empire required to keep going. It's a lot. It's a lot. It's like hundreds of thousands every year uh, that they're burning through, you know. Um, of course, it, you know, you think about sort of Haiti, uh, colonial Haiti right before the Haitian Revolution, the first real, uh, first modern revolution, the first, uh, that's another place where, you know, it's the Iroquois Confederacy. Uh, it's Algonquin speakers, Algonquin-speaking intellectuals, right, teaching Europeans about democracy. And it's actually the Haitian Revolution uh, teaching us about uh, revolution as well. Yeah. So, but it, in Haiti, the conditions that prevailed were such that slaves would arrive, you know, slave 
people would arrive and these people would be uh, worked to death within three years, four years, I think that are, is like average, three or four years. Yeah. Um, and it's not much better in England. It's not much better in England, right? Um, just actually just reading Capital Volume 1 properly, finally. Uh, chapter 10, he's, he's on about uh, the child labor that prevails there, right? Um, and there I kept thinking, too, of uh, sort of the, the, the way that child labor is coming back in the form of education. Children are required to do all kinds of work uh, cultivating themselves as human capital from an insanely young age, and they're being put on mood-stabilizing drugs for this purpose and all of this, right? Um, Malcolm Harris's book, Kids These Days, is pretty fantastic in that regard. That was about that, yeah. So that's a new kind of child labor that we actually have, uh, right? So, oh, but the, the major world religions, yeah? I keep talking in circles. This is how I do it, isn't it? Um, the, the, the major world religions are uh, reactions to these contradictions. Uh, and Buddhism too, you know, the, the Terigata, the, the earliest um, songs of the early uh, Buddhist um, matriarchs, uh, these are women who are sort of unsatisfied with their bourgeois marriage, arranged marriages that they're uh, trading. Um, they're sort of um, merchant fathers have set up for them. So you have the Silk, the Silk Road is are the beginnings of it, you know, it's arising and you're having merchant capital, uh, India, China, and Persia at this time, you know, something like 5th century BCE or whatever, you know. Um, Greeks were still, you know, doing whatever they were doing. But so anyway, you have a kind of proto-bourgeoisie there and it's that class that originally supports Buddhism. Buddhism has to have, uh, our religion has to have, so this is the, the paradox. Every world religion is a reaction to the uh, class struggle. And every world religion that stays around and becomes a world religion has to have, has to be co-opted by a ruling class or other, some ruling class or other, right? That's interesting. Um, I... Althusser says that ideology has no history, right? Um, I wonder if that's true. I wonder if ideology, well, no, I don't know. I don't know. I'll leave that open. There's many things I don't know. So um, we'll learn about it. We'll try and test it scientifically and, and figure out about it. So, uh, but, but, so, it, it some state, right, which is run by a ruling class, a ruling class has to accept a, a given ideology. In order, and it has to, a ruling class has to promote it. A ruling class has to support it with money uh, or some other kinds of, you know, resources, whatever the, uh, that may be. They do. And, and so you have to have a kind of revisionism, even if uh, most of the major world religions, if you really followed them to the letter, if you really listen to what Jesus says, uh, and especially if you kind of try to guess at what might Jesus really have said to be killed the way that he was killed, right? Um, and maybe take away the things that um, seem like they were added later to sort of soften uh, the impact of what he might have been really saying. And you get a certain thing. Well, actually, though, in the mind of Westerners, uh, since the early modern and definitely 19th century on as you have the British Empire 
really rifling through India, you have uh, an image of Buddhism that is very much like that. It's as if, you know, you sort of took just the sayings of the historical Jesus and said, that's Christianity. And you could, you could do that, and you could actually think that it's a super intellectual uh, religion that is super peaceful. Oh, God, you know. And then you might have a lot of cognitive dissonance if you look back in actual uh, history of Christian countries, and you look, oh, it's been used to support this awful hierarchy and brutal suppression of uh, you know, underclasses and uh, wars all the time. Ah, that's, that's weird. That's funny. And, and that's the reaction that people normally have if you talk about any of the religious wars that happened among Buddhists in, uh, you know, certainly Japan. I know the most about that than anything. But um, if you look at the class exploitation in Tibet, say, um, which, like, the Nazis loved, right? Um, and they loved it because you can use Buddhism. You would think that Buddhism would not work very well for uh, supporting class society because it's all about, um, okay, so the, the origin of uh, evil is, is, is uh, sort of clinging desire, clinging attachment. And, uh, you know, that's inevitable, but you um you can sort of let go you can learn to let go of this right uh through all kinds of through whatever method right and there's just there's tons of methods and that's where actually it's extremely adaptable because you can have the idea that oh actually there's you know you can get a soteriology of the buddha the buddha is a savior you you can have faith in the buddha if not the the buddha of this world you know gautama shakyamuni buddha uh, but not this world, but actually there's other Buddhas in other worlds, right? It's almost like the same transformation that you can make by saying that, yeah, we are currently in a huge arc of ramping up of class forces and class struggle uh, that le- reaches back maybe 6,000 years or so in world history. But at the same time, at the edges of that, there's a fractal pattern of all kinds of... Uh, Right, revolution and return to classless society and going back and forth, and it always was. There always were many different um, classless societies. There have been many revolutions. There have been many communisms uh, achieved. It's almost like thinking, of, it reminds me of thinking about a mandala of the, all the different worlds, and each world has its own Buddha, and, each, and when they and they will work work out their destiny in whatever way in that world and sort of achieve all enlightenment there and and so on there's this kind of view right there's many different kinds of views uh zen which i've talked a little bit about would be very much like just cut off everything and and um even the idea that there is such a thing as enlightenment there is the teaching is that there is no teaching you just have to exist right here but even with Zen, there's, no, there's a sense that like, okay, we have to build a framework and then we break it down. And we build a framework and then we break it down. Because the human mind requires a framework. It requires these oppositions of hot and cold and good and evil and whatever. But then we break it down. And, uh, and so then in this episode, uh, I want to get into a particular kind of revisionist Buddhism that you can really see a great picture of in a collection of Buddhist folk tales. These are known as Setsua in Japan. You have similar traditions in Southeast Asia, China, Korea, 
really anywhere that uh, Chinese Chinese Buddhism sort of spreads. Yeah, um, Buddhism as translated into Chinese. So it's the text that I'm talking about is the Nihon Ryoiki, and it may have been completed around 822. This is the early Heian period. The Japanese state as uh, using, constituted in, in several waves, kind of using uh, Chinese bureaucratic uh, structures and using writing. Um, Japan's real interesting because they know about writing from at least the first century CE, but they don't adopt it as a technology uh, until the seventh century. And all along, you get sort of increasing numbers of prestige goods uh, with writing on them. So you know that that was considered a, an interesting thing to, to have. It would be a prestige good. Uh, they gradually, by the 5th century, are making their own uh, inscri inscribed objects, uh, often with like a fake inscription that doesn't mean anything, or it's like copied from something that was a real inscription, and it's backwards, and it's and it's garbled, uh, or there will be, you get the beginnings. Um, in the 5th century, you get iron swords that actually have names that appear in the later chronicles from the 8th century, so we're starting to get um, traces of the particular chieftain family that ends up winning out and becoming the sort of Japanese imperial family when they begin to use the title of emperor in the 7th century, the end of the 7th century. Right. That's that's really the the founding moment of Japan. Um, and then a mythology is projected backwards from there, of course. And that would be the sort of traditional like imperial Japanese uh, calendar worldview of uh, an unbroken string of emperors from ages eternal. Um, even then, it's not eternal. They they had a calendar that they created uh, the the chronicles themselves are backdated. They fudge like two calendrical cycles so that you get 60 years, 60 years, 120 years. We suddenly skip back to make everything older and cooler. And then the modern government does something similar too. So that neatly you get sort of uh, 1940s, they would be. There are inscriptions even around here in Tokyo in parks or something left from the wartime that are in the old imperial... Uh, calendar, calendar, yeah, the old imperial sort of year numbers, and they have a year numbering system that uh, is conveniently just barely like more years than the 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 AD numbers. So it's like two thousand six hundred or something, right? So I mean that's not eternal. We're gonna cover in the in this podcast all kinds of things that are from, uh, you know, a couple thousand years before. 600 BCE, right, when presumably that would put Emperor Jinmu, the very first human emperor, kind of coming from the, the high plane of heaven down onto Japan. Uh, if that's the beginning of Japan and that happens 600 BCE, we're, we can go way before that. Uh, but anyway, so uh, Nihon Ryoiki, Buddhist folk tales, which are very, very much... Uh, supporting a, a class society, supporting a feudal state with an aristocracy and, and all this, right? And it's actually written by a kind of mendicant, kind of unofficial, kind of uh, shady 
monk uh, known as a Shido So. There were all these um, privately ordained monks, monks that sort of just na name themselves as monks, and they go around. And uh, this guy was traveling all around the country, and many what if, much of what they would do is actually collect funds for public works projects like bridges and harbors to build these things because uh, it was a time of sort of an early collapse of the Japanese state, actually. They get a grain state going, but then they have uh, diseases and famines and things hitting. And there's a great series of these monks that go around doing sort of public benefit work. Uh, and this monk, Keikai, who collected the Nihon Ryoiki, and wrote it, uh, was collecting clearly folk tales from across Japan. And he was trying to create a, stories which are like the Chinese stories that, you, that he would have known, the Chinese Buddhist folk tales, right, which, which show miracles and things happening in China thanks to the teachings of the Buddha and so on. And also sort of um, the larger framework is that it ends with a story sort of telling how, in fact, the current emperor, Emperor Saga, is actually the reincarnation of a great and powerful monk of a few generations before. So this is, uh, st it's legitimating imperial rule uh, at the same time that it is giving you technologies to subvert imperial rule at all these interesting, in all these interesting ways. It's kind of like, uh, and, and you, you, you're encouraged to use the technology of karma and, and rebirth. If you know the structure of rebirth, well, then you can maybe game the system and actually get like a better rebirth. You can get more merit and stuff, right? So our thesis here that, you know, the great major world religions are different reactions to the contradictions of class society. Well, they also don't stick around unless they are, you know, some revisionist version is made. And w maybe the, the great world religions then are the, the dead husks of revolutionary theory of the past. Revolutionary thought of the past sort of hardens and, cha and changes maybe into... Um, but it, without the revolutionary kind of core there, it wouldn't have its appeal, would it? It wouldn't have its appeal, but it gets sort of instrumentalized and turned into a tool, uh, a tool for the, those on the bottom, but then ultimately, you know, it's, it's co-opted, and this is a common story, I think. Because, as I was saying, like, uh, Buddhism, you, the core teachings of it are that um, the... the things that we perceive with our senses and the, the accumulation of, of perceptions uh, in our minds are empty. Ultimately, you know, the, whatever connection that might have with some kind of reality is contingent and coincidental and actually rare that it would even have any connection, right? And so, uh, you know, you should be able to say that should really put class society in uh, quite... Uh, an unstable place for you, shouldn't it? You know, you wouldn't, how can you believe in like the absolute authority of the king or something, right? If you have like a Indo-European father god and, and who is authorizing the king, right? I mean, that would be a very standard, and it doesn't have to be Indo-European. It can be, uh, you know, just the very standard idea of the Japanese emperor would work this way too, but all over the world, uh, the king or whatever is the descendant of some great gods or other, and those gods have provided us with this wonderful grain that the peasants have to, to grow, right? This is a common pattern, not universal, but common. 
So Buddhism shouldn't support that. It really, and it kind of doesn't in China. Ultimately, there's there's a short period that Buddhism is having any kind of state power and, and influence in society, and then it becomes a pretty minor thing. It doesn't become a kind of state ideology in China as much, but in Japan it very much does. And you can really see that here in the Nihon Ryoiki. You can see how uh, it, it, the the doctrine of um, reincarnation is really used quite a bit, and the idea of the five paths of existence. So you have to you have to understand this worldview, and it's a worldview that is uh, quite different from uh, modern Western worldview. Um, in some ways, it's more similar to a, a medieval and and pre-modern uh, European worldview. I will argue. And that's interesting. And maybe that is a good place to sort of drop in what brings me to this right now, because we've had on in online left discourse, I think we've had a kind of open, uh, open disagreement between, we'll say, the dirtbag left, who uh, very often come out with, you know, I think they're getting some memos here, I'm not real sure. Uh, on the one hand, and then on the other hand, sort of conspiracy left Twitter, conspiracy left uh, online people, uh, some of whom I will call the vampire hunters. We got some vampire hunters out there who are really um, tend to focus on the kind of uh, uh, occult aspects of ruling class organizing, right? Um, now, well, before I get in too much into that, let me say right now, I... On this debate, I really do kind of come down on the on the conspiracy side. I got to do that. Uh, you know, my base would be sort of uh, historical materialism. I like to study revolutionary history, revolutionary theory. I feel like that is important. I feel like, you know, if you are interested in making a change in relations of production and bringing about the kingless generation or anything like that, whatever you want to call it, uh, you need to look at sort of what people what your comrades of the past have done and how that's gone wrong and how that's gone right and what we can try next and so on. Uh, but then the other side of that would be what has the enemy done? The, uh, the class enemy is out there and organizing and uh, they're smart and they're not just fucking class forces. They're not blind class forces. Oh, I just will, you know... I, I'm just move. I'm just a force moving uh, through the ether, with no uh, direction and will of my own. No, that's not the case. They organize. They uh, act in their class interest. Right, the ruling class. Um, that that is to say, there's such a thing as parapolitics. Parapolitics. We are very interested in parapolitics on this podcast, and I would think if you are at all interested in, you know, I mean that that should be. You should think of that as revolutionary history. That's part of your history. Um, it's just the enemy camp. What are they doing? What have they been doing recently? You know, this is the recent history of class struggle is, um, you know, all of these parapolitical events and, and narratives and, uh, everything that's out there is not true. Obviously nobody thinks it is. Uh, but if you are at all interested, uh, in, uh, changing relations of production in whatever way, I should think that you are really going to want to fucking learn about what uh, the vanguard of the bourgeoisie has been up to. Because they do have a vanguard. They do organize. They do act uh, willfully. Yeah, they, they do. Right? Um, now, and, and there is, 
irrefutable evidence that at least some of them uh, have this kind of occult Satanist uh, worldview, which is I think is historically a very bounded thing. You know, this is a mistake that I see. This would be a limitation of some of the vampire hunters, I think, um, taking that worldview at face value and not seeing it as an artifact of, you know, I would t I would trace it to the Spanish Inquisition and the, yeah, the, the so-called Reconquista, the, the Converso culture in Spain, sort of high. And those are a lot of the people that are in the trading networks in the uh, Mediterranean during the Crusades. And you have... Uh, kind of a lot of esoteric Islamic ideas coming into Judaism, right? Gematria comes from uh, certain Arabic, certain, uh, yeah, uh, Muslim things, I think, right? And where Muslim, Islam actually, uh, I'm, I'm continuing to read this book, uh, Islam and Buddhism on the Silk Road, and it's, it's fantastic. It's really fascinating, right? Um, there's a lot of good points from that that I'm, Want to, might want to bring to bear here, actually. But a, a major point would be that there are a thousand years of peaceful coexistence between Islam and Buddhism as well on the eastern end of the Islamic world. The western end of the Islamic world, you have peaceful coexistence with uh, Christianity and, and Judaism, obviously, but you also have with Buddhism. And in this way, uh, there's many aspects of certain strains of Islam that go beyond Abrahamism, right? I think some of our vampire hunters out there kind of even, you know, you've got some trad casts and you've got, I think everybody is probably white, but some are trad casts, some are converts to Islam, um, whatever, you know. But uh, they reject that part of Islam, even when they're talking about jinn or, or whatever, they make it be, you know, exactly the Christian idea of Satan. Um, not even the Jewish idea of Satan, which Hasatan in in uh, Job, right, which is becomes part of the, Jew the uh, Hebrew Bible after the time of Jesus, Right. It, it becomes part of the Hebrew Bible after it becomes popular in Greek translation, where Hasatan is very accurately translated as Diabolos, which means the prosecuting attorney. So Hasatan, the, the opposer, is, it would be another thing, but it's, it's an attorney and it's, an, it's a prosecutor in a, in a court. So it's like a cop, you know, it's like God's cop is what Satan is. Um, and he's not the same as the serpent in the Garden of Eden in early Judaism at all. That's an esoteric idea that grows later in the Hellenistic period, Second Temple Judaism, you know. And, uh, you know, Christianity then takes it as foundational, not because of anything in the Christian Bible or the Hebrew Bible at all, but be based on things, ideas that appear in, like, the, the books of Enoch and stuff, right? So... Anyway, uh, the, the, that would bring me to say sort of like the weakest point of the vampire hunters is really when they deal with anything non-Western or anything indigenous. Uh, the the kind of nicer ones have to keep on like just sort of like skirting the issue or something. And the ones that are maybe a little more based will kind of just be like, yeah, you see anything, you know, um, they'll sort of point to they'll just be like, yeah, anything indigenous and non-Western is satanic. It's evil, of course. Um, okay. Um, and just sort of point to even sometimes, uh, for example, Buddhist folktales and just be like, oh, oh clear. They, it's, point, it's parts of the Buddhist folktale. Um, I'm thinking of the Grateful Dead, right? Um, Grateful Dead uh, discourse. If you know what I'm talking about, you'll, you'll know. Uh, 
I don't necessarily want to put anyone on blast, but people who know can be part of this conversation, and that's what I'll, I'll say. Um, okay, so, uh, yeah, the grateful. So you, what you're seeing there is you're seeing a, a worldview that is completely different from the Abrahamic one. Uh, and, you know, to say it really crudely, it's just kind of like, uh, you know, this is a totally different worldview than the worldview in the book that I like, and so therefore they must actually be in league with the bad guy in the book that I like, even though they don't have a fucking clue about your book and they don't know about your story that you like, you know? Um, they don't know that character. They don't have share those assumptions at all, right? And so this is where I want to explain uh, the Buddhist five paths of existence, okay? This or originates in India. Um, it goes all the way through the Buddhist world. Uh, this is the idea that, you know, there are basically five different things you can be born as. One is a uh, human. Another is a heavenly being, um, which they're also mortal. They live for just long, long ages, but then they eventually die. And and it's a nice thing to be reborn as, but but it will end. And then uh, you have animals, right? The beasts. And then you have uh, two kind of hells almost. I don't know if I should call them hell exactly, but you have the realm of hungry ghosts and the realm of uh, Ashura, Asuras, which are... Um, it's the realm of endless battle and fighting. So it's almost, if you apply a class analysis, you can see that these are two hells for peasants and for aristocrats in a kind of uh, feudal society, isn't it? Right? What is the scariest thing for an aristocrat? Dying in battle. And what is the scariest thing for a peasant? Starving to death. So in the realm of hungry ghosts, uh, you, and it's not a separate realm, it's a path, right? So actually, like, these, these existences are happening in our world in the same sort of space as us, but we can't see them, at least not all the time, right? We can see animals, usually, but uh, listen, animals are also, like, sort of supernatural to the exact same degree that any other kind of being that's on a different path of existence from human uh, would be. So this is a wild thing to realize um, as well. Uh, oh, I was going to say, so hungry ghosts are like always looking for food and they're just hungry and hungry and they can't, you know, eat enough to, they'll never be satisfied, right? Always starving. And, oh, but those aren't eternal either, right? Like you, you eventually get over that and then you can be reborn as something else. Uh, but an animal, right? An animal is also a different path of existence and we can see animals, but, but we can see them, but they're not always, you know, animals are sort of in this worldview Animals are like, quote-unquote, supernatural, right? Uh, there is no natural-supernatural divide. It's not a binary like that. It's like there's these five things. You can imagine them in a chart or something if you want, right? And uh, you would be reborn between all these different things. Animals are wild in a lot of these um, these Buddhist folktales uh, because they can symbolize different sort of emotions, like... Uh, a bad. There's one about a badger where uh, someone is. Uh, there's a a place where people keep getting murdered, and uh, someone some warrior goes by there and he sees a badger underneath a building and he goes and kills the badger and then after he killed the badger, uh, then the the demon oni kind of ogre that was eating people stopped appearing and they realized that that was the badger. Right. So what is that? Is the badger like somehow aware? He's not aware badger. He's not a special badger. Every badger can do this. Every and foxes would be a little more famous. Maybe 
people would know that about Japanese folk mythology that foxes can like get you lost on the road and and so on trick you they're kind of tricksters uh there are stories where somebody unknowingly marries a mouse they thought they married they thought they met a person and married them but then they like saw them around a corner or something real quick before they were able to sort of like change into their fake human form and that they were in their original real form as a mouse right that's when they realized uh snakes are are like the animals of horniness if you are too horny or you're too you know if women are jealous of uh other women you know there can be a kind of like thing anxieties class uh anxieties related to patriarchy right where women women's kind of resentment against men or against each other because they're competing for a man can turn into uh turn them into a snake or you can get attacked by a snake which are which are horny and they want to have sex with people um either women or there's a story of a monk which who was dozing off on the veranda of the temple and suddenly he had a dream that he was he was getting it on with a, a beautiful woman and just when he was about to really come like um he woke up to this big noise uh above him and he realized what had happened was the snake had come along and it was just like giving him a blowjob and sucking him off in the snake and when he came like the 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 snake rocketed up and hit the eaves of the temple and 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 it and it died because of the semen uh, of a human being is poisonous to it because it's a hum- the human world is a different realm you know it's a different path of existence than animals and so if animals animals would find that poisonous I guess so <laughs> fascinating uh, stories like that exist uh, so every animal is like like if you want to say supernatural supernatural anyway you know it's like not um, you know, there isn't that binary. And even that binary supernatural and natural is probably actually early modern. In medieval Europe, in medieval France, you have things like a cow trampled a baby to death and the, the peasants held a court. Uh, they held a trial for the cow and found the cow guilty of murder and executed it uh, as if it had a will and whatever, you know. So this would be very, very different from the... Um, Thomas Aquinas's tripartite soul, right, where you have the uh, anima vegetativa and the anima animalia and the anima rationalis or whatever it is. Um, so the the rational soul is the thing that only humans have. They have all three types, right? And plants just have a vegetative soul that allows them to grow and live and exist, and then animals have an animal soul that allows them to move around, and they're just basically like automata. But by the time you get to talking about automata and stuff, that's already... I mean, it's actually based on Islamic science, Islamic uh, commentaries on Aristotle, Averroes, Avicenna, etc. A lot of that is being translated into English now. You can even read it. Look up uh, Ibn Sina. That's Avicenna. So then Thomas Aquinas in the Catholic world uh, synthesizes that. And then by the early modern period, uh, that becomes a kind of groundwork for perhaps the scientific revolution, right? Shame lech marhelamaris, shame rezerhelamar. Soon the shame ye were saying, oh, huggy gain marhelamar. So, this is a whole different story, right? It's not cosmic monarchism. 
you have transmigration of souls. You don't have a cosmic uh, monarch, and you don't have cosmic good and cosmic evil facing off. That's just not the worldview, right? Um, nobody has any idea about that. So we can look at these, and we can nevertheless, though, see how class struggle plays out here, and you get Buddhism supporting class structures. You might think that it would, it would be hard, but actually, uh, within transmigration, you can just say, oh, well, if you're born at the bottom of the social hierarchy, then you must have done something in previous lives. You must have had bad karma to be born there. And then that also means that you can just uh, you know, say prayers, copy the Lotus Sutra, and you'll have better luck next time. The transmigration doctrine actually allows you to have kind of a light, lightish view toward life and death. It's almost like, you know, if you die, you can just start over again. You get another life. You know, you can, it's like a video game, kind of. Uh, you'll be born in a different place. You'll be, you know, there's all kinds of interesting things. There's so many of these stories. There's one that I chose for this time where somebody dies. Uh, there's a very, very common formula where someone will die and they'll say, uh, but don't cremate my body until the seventh day. And then they don't cremate the body until the seventh day. And that allows just enough time for them to go to the world of the dead and witness all the, you know, the good deeds that they did and the people that they helped uh, and the animals that they helped. You know, it's, it's not just people you can help. You can help anyone and it gets you good karma. Um, particularly letting animals go instead of eating them is a common thing. I was in the court of King Enma which is a, a kind of Chinese Taoist import, I think, ultimately, I want to say. Um, and then in that court, you know, advocates for me came to, uh, to support me. Um, well, see, there you get, you know, King Enma is, would be kind of like Satan in, in the original Jewish way of uh, being a prosecuting attorney, right? He's a prosecuting attorney. Uh, and then all of the animals that you have let go instead of eating them or people you've helped or they will become your defense attorneys in the next world. And then uh, because I helped all these people, they actually said, oh, you can go now. I mean, we're going to let him go back to life. And then he comes back to life in his body. He or her. It's happened women, women a lot, actually. Uh, there are a lot of women in these stories. The story, uh, and, and then you get to come back to life, and then they told everyone what happens in the next life. They have a near-death experience, so they can come back and tell you, uh, right? And these stories, in that way, they represent a very kind of bottom-up view. You can see a whole lot of um, class struggle in these folktales, you know, um, through, these, through these religious ideas. So with that, I, I think I'd love to get right into it. Um, so Nihon Dioiki 1-3, book 1, story 3, um, you have a man in a field. Uh, he's, he's holding a metal rod, and he, the thunder, he gets sort of struck by lightning. It's interesting that you know, that really would be a way to get struck by lightning. Uh, and then he sees the thunder god, and he was going to kill the thunder, uh, but he doesn't. And then the, out of thankfulness, the thunder... Uh, tells him a son will be born to you, and this um, this son is born, and uh, he's he becomes this kind of class warrior who who fights on behalf of the peasants against uh, first an aristocratic strongman. There was a prince of a royal family who excelled in strength and was living in separate quarters by the northeastern corner of the imperial palace. 
Um, yeah, and he there's a big stone, and who can throw it farther? And he beats the he beats him in the contest. Later, the boy became an apprentice at Gangoji Temple. That's in Asuka, and it moved to Nara, and became one of the seven great temples of Nara. Uh, at this time, the boys who rang the bell in the bell tower were being killed night after night. The boy, learning of this, said to the monks, I will catch the ogre, kill him, and put a stop to this plague of death. When the monks agreed to this, he had four men stationed with lamps at the four corners of the bell tower and told them, When I seize the ogre, remove the shades from your lamps. Then he took his stand by the door of the bell tower. It's kind of like... Uh, Beowulf uh, thing. They, he catches him, and then though, uh, so here the four they pulled the, the boy pulled the ogre to each of the four corners of the tower and was thus able to uncover the lamps. When uh, the four men were so terrified they could not lift the shades from the lamps. Uh, when dawn came, it was found that the boy had pulled out the ogre's hair by the roots, and the ogre had fled. The next day, they followed the trail of the ogre's blood to see where it would lead. It led to a crossroads, where a wicked servant of the temple had been buried. Thus they knew that the ogre was the ghost of the wicked servant. So you get kind of ghosts coming back. It's unclear if like the ghosts live in some other dimension that is always with us, but then other times there are particular mountains where ghosts appear, and you have to go there to see them, even if the person like didn't live on that mountain or anything like that. Um, pretty inconsistent, but uh, yeah, that's how it is. Um, the hair from the ogre's head is preserved to this day in Gangoji and is looked on as a treasure of the temple. Um, so here, actually, the boy, uh, the strong boy, uh, helps to defeat the vengeful ghost of a wicked servant. So, you know, who knows? I would like to hear his side of the story. I'm not sure. You know, this is a lower class, like, servant. Um, and there would be, that would be a slave. You know, there's no difference. Um, Japan was a slave society until, technically, until after World War II, really. You know, you still had sort of basically indentured servitude um, that, you know, obviously not anti, not like chattel slavery of, of black people, but but kind of chattel, there was, was working people to death for sure, right? In the Middle Ages, you get, uh, there's all different uh, no plays and old uh, puppet plays, right? The early puppet theater called Joruri Sekyobushi uh, tells about, children who are kidnapped and and sold as slaves right and there actually was quite a one interesting vicissitude of the japanese slave trade is that they were selling them then to the portuguese and spanish and they were going to south america at that time uh, sometimes to china japan would also send japanese slaves together with the embassies to tang and and sway so kentoshi kenzuishi they would send a certain number of japanese slaves there right uh the Japanese uh, feudal state would give a certain amount of land to every person, to, and you would get more land, a bit more for a man, a bit less for a woman, and then even less for a slave. So even slaves got land. Isn't that interesting? That's, that's a basic difference between feudalism and capitalism. Capitalism requires that the working class be dispossessed and be desperate to sell their labor power for, by the hour, right? Um, going through that working day. I was just telling you that um, Capital, Volume 1, Chapter 10, you can read all about about that. But uh, yeah, under feudalism, it's more about like how many days do you work? Uh, and interestingly, when you're working for the Lord, you'll probably be on the Lord's field as opposed to your own field. You have your own field. Okay. And then there's common land uh, for the village and, and so on. Yeah. 
So then, uh, once again, however, this boy becomes a, a class warrior for the, the underclass once more as some nobles are actually cutting off. Some princes of the royal family cut off the water supply to the fields, so they became parched. In Japan, you know, you have rice paddies everywhere and sort of how the water, the rainwater flows down, you can, depending on how it flows, you can get more or less to your own field. There's even a... It's, this is probably originally a Chinese saying. There's a four-character Sino-Japanese uh, what expression, gadeng insui, which means uh, drawing water to your own field, which means kind of like you know acting in your own self-interest, being selfish, perhaps, right? And so here we have exactly that. The princes, right, cut off the water supply. The boy said, "I'll see what that the water gets into these fields." And so the monks agreed to leave things to him. The boy had a plow handle made so large that it required more than ten men to carry it. It's got to be a plow handle, I guess. Then he picked it up like a staff, carried it to the sluice gate, and stuck it there. But the princes pulled out the plow handle and threw it away. So the sluice gate was once more blocked, and no water flowed into the temple fields. The boy then brought a stone that was so big it would take more than a hundred men to carry it, and propped open the sluice gate allowing the water to flow into the temple fields. The princes, awed by his strength, no longer attempted to stop him, and as a result, the temple fields did not dry up, but produced an excellent crop. Temples would, be, would function often as a kind of local uh, credit union for peasants. Uh, it's very interesting to look into the ways that peasants were doing all kinds of things besides just farming, right? Um, it's uh, the ruling class thinks of them as just farmers because the ruling class in a grain state wants to get grain from them, but they themselves are doing all kinds of other things, including financial schemes uh, with each other. And sometimes it'll be through the temple in this way. That this is why Buddhist uh, folk literature is the place where kind of anti-authoritarian uh, class struggle is recorded in uh, pre-modern Japanese literature. Is a major source for that, I will say. All right. Uh, then we have again book two, uh, tale sixteen. Um, you have a guy who frees oysters, um, which actually, with modern scientific knowledge, I can tell you that oysters have almost no nervous system. They they don't feel anything. They don't know anything. And even if you're a vegetarian, uh, for reasons of wanting to not hurt living beings. Um, you don't hurt oysters by eating them. You really don't. They have no nervous system at all. Um, so just telling you right there. Uh, from As far as I can see it, you could be a vegetarian. You could eat oysters if that's your reason, right? Uh, and they're very good for the environment. It's very, very good for the water. It cleans the water to have them. You, They're very good for you. You get all kinds of good vitamins and minerals from it. And they're practically a plant. But uh, our authors here don't know that. And so 10 oysters... Um, the man finally, so he's trying to tell a man, you know, don't kill those oysters. I will uh, free them. And uh, he names a price, 10 oysters. That will cost you five bushels of rice. The master agreed to this and inviting a monk to give a blessing, had the oysters returned to the sea. And then he dies and goes to the palace in the underworld. And uh, he sees, you know, the oysters and they sort of, um, right, move him give him get him back to the the world again and he gets to live again that's his near-death experience notice now okay this connects to against the grain and the dawn of everything these anthropological kind of ideas uh 
you these are penalizing this this puts a religious sanction on people engaging in hunter-gatherer occupations and to this day in japan you have uh s discrimination against uh you know in english you might just say buraku discrimination right but there are all kinds of outcast classes in uh pre-modern japan and these outcast classes will be people who engage in occupations that have to do with killing living beings, killing uh, sentient beings, like uh, leather worker and undertaker, right? Even someone who deals with putting, cleaning up human bodies would be, um, you know, unclean in this way. And to this day, you know, I even, I know someone whose brother was all ready to marry a rich girl that he met uh and uh he was a successful guy in his chosen field brilliant man and uh they got all ready to have the marriage you know he was a japanese american and uh they came to japan for the wedding and she grew up in japan and went to oxford and all this and they came to japan for the wedding and they found some they must have found out something because all of a sudden it was just like let me think about it actually wait a minute and it was off so still happens marriage discrimination against people that have some kind of background like this right so what does that do for the grain state that actually it, across the board in world history we find these arist aristocracies discouraging their peasants from doing anything other than growing grain of course they don't always do that and that's a big part of class struggle here yeah uh, but that's an, that's another way in which right here buddhist ideology is acting as a class um acting as a ruling class state ideology to make the peasants do what the aristocrats want them to do. There you go. Uh, book three, tale 14. We have actually um, an official in charge of vagrants. He tracked them down and made them pay production and labor taxes. So look at that. If, if you're not working your fields, this is what the grain state wants you to do as a peasant. You have to be on your field, grow your grain. Well, people don't always do that. People don't always do that. Uh, they run off. Maybe, um, well, the n number one reason to do that would be that it's much nicer to live as a hunter-gatherer. And throughout Japanese history, too, you have these hunter-gatherer types, um, energy, kind of, uh, you know, nomadic energies and classes at the edges of society. And um, sometimes really close to the center of society as well. Right. As these are connected with religious spaces and it's a kind of, you know, there's a kind of logic of asylum in European culture as well. Or like, you know, Giorgio Agamben talks about the state of exception. Derrida has a book, The Beast and the Sovereign, talking about how, you know, the king as an exceptional kind of figure shares some things with the animal as an exceptional figure in European society, perhaps. In Japanese, Amino Yoshihiko would be a, a, a great... I think, I think I would really like to deal with a, a text um, of his in, in this podcast. I think I actually have a guest in mind that would be good to, to do that with. Um, more on that later. Stay tuned. Um, so, at that time, there was a man registered in the capital of Nara. Uh, he became a lay brother and constantly recited the Dharani of the thousand-armed Kannon. That's Guan Yin or Avalok Avalokiteshvara. 
um, becomes female in the process of crossing China, and then in Japan, Kannon becomes a kind of goddess of mercy. He wandered here and there in the mountains of the Kaga district, carrying out his religious practice. So he's a practitioner, this man. Um, and the third year of Jing, you know, uh, this certain time, um, the official was in the village of Mimakawa in that district. He came across the lay brother or practitioner and said to him, What province do you come from? The man answered, I am a religious practitioner, not a layman. The official accused him angrily, saying, You are a vagrant. Why don't you pay your taxes? He bound and hid him to force him to work, but the man refused and resisted him, earnestly quoting the proverb that says, When lice from the clothes climb up to the head, they turn black. When those from the head climb down to the clothes, they turn white. So the proverb says, I carry, I carry the darani, uh, which is an incantation, a kind of prayer that is meditatively repeated, right? Uh, on the top of my head and the sutra on my back in order to avoid trouble from lay people. Why do you hit and humiliate someone who upholds the Mahayana teachings? Mahayana is the broad path. Um, yeah, this is Buddhism that is more about more than just meditation. It, it's Buddhism that has gods and um, gods and ceremonies and smells and bells sometimes and all kinds of other other things. And it's really the Buddhism that developed in the empire of Alexander the Great. This too is part of the Hellenistic synthesis. Mahayana Buddhism develops in Gandhara and goes north uh, into the Taklamakan Desert as the Silk Road grows and it enters China and so on, right? So it, it is maybe it's one of the things we might call revisionist Buddhism. But of course, any Buddhism that is being used to support a class Society, I would argue, would be revisionist in some sense because some kind of really pure Buddhism would recognize so no such, uh, you know, structures as, as legitimate, right? But anyway, uh, yeah, upholds the my I I'm a clergy, in other words. If they truly have miraculous power, you will see it exercised now. The the sutras and the dharani. Meanwhile, the official took the senjukyo, bound it up, and dragged it along the ground. So the senjukyo, this is his sutra that he has. And he dragged it along the ground, desecrates it, right? The official's house was about half a mile from the place where he hit the practitioner. When he reached the gate of his house and tried to get down from his horse, he found he was fastened tight and could not move. Then he and his horse flew through the sky to the place where he had been when he hit the practitioner. He remained hanging in the sky for a day and a night, and the next day at noon he fell from the sky and was killed. His body was broken into bits like a bag full of little blocks. Of those who witnessed it, none but were filled with terror. It is just as the Senjukyo says. If you recite this great divine Dharani, even a dead tree will bring forth limbs, branches, flowers, and fruit. And a Mahayana scripture says, but he who derides these Dharanis will be comparable to one who destroys pagodas and temples in 84,000 countries. This is what it means. So these... these um, these it's interesting how these books have ways of sort of replicating themselves. Uh, there's one way to think about religious texts as almost like a virus, the way that a virus has, uh, you know, instructions inside it to produce another virus. These texts too. Um, the Lotus Sutra is a great one to read for that because it keeps talking about how the Buddha is going to preach the Lotus Sutra and narrating that. And meanwhile, in another universe, in another place, there's another Buddha and it has a, he has a wonderful pure land that is made of gold and rubies and all the streets are rubies and all the, all the light posts are rubies and, all the, and uh, 
uh, all these descriptions and stuff. And then he was still about to preach the Lotus Sutra. And, and then he said, anyone who, who copies this Lotus Sutra will receive all these blessings. And anyone who carries this Lotus Sutra with them will receive all these blessings. And uh, it'll be the same. It'll be just the same as if he did this and that and the other thing, right? And that's a kind of financialization there, too. So with the growth of merchant capital, we see these religions that actually have a financialization of sin and good and evil and merit and, and whatever else, right? And eventually you get sort of that you can buy them, right? I mean, the famous example of uh, Catholic Europe, sale of indulgences, all of this, right? So, um, yeah, the, the Lotus Sutra keeps telling you about the Lotus Sutra, but actually, do we ever hear what the Lotus Sutra is? I think you never really do. You know, you can, I'm reading the Lotus Sutra right now. Wait, okay. It's kind of um, recursive or meta in that way, yeah? Um, so, yeah, what we have here, this practitioner uh, gets out of taxes. You can get out of taxes. You can get out of the obligations of the grain state if you do this religious practice. So it's a little more complicated than that this is just supporting the grain state completely. There's a kind of critique, there's a kind of subversion built into it as well. And then we have, uh, uh, well, 326 is a story that David Graeber quotes in Debt, the First 5,000 Years, about a, a girl boss in a certain place who uh, would basically commits usury, usury she engages in usury she tries to sell she lends money at interest basically she gave birth to eight children and was very rich possessing heaps of wealth her riches included horses cattle male and female slaves money rice rice fields other kinds of fields and more but by nature she lacked any feeling for the way and was so greedy that she never gave anything away by selling rice wine diluted with a lot of water she managed to make a big profit when she made a loan, she used a small measuring cup, but when she collected the loan, she used a big cup. So you end up with more rice at the end of that, right? On the day she lent rice, she used a lightweight scale, but when she collected it, she used a heavyweight scale. She showed no mercy in forcibly collecting interest, sometimes ten times and sometimes a hundred times the original loan. Her ears were deaf to the pleas of those in trouble, and her heart knew no generosity. Because of this, many people greatly worried, abandoned their homes to escape from her, wandering to other provinces. There has never been anyone so greedy. So this, this behavior actually causes a societal collapse. And that's exactly what, you know, accumulation, the logic of accumulation leads to this, doesn't it? Uh, some people have to, the profit has to come from somewhere, and it comes from uh, the, the lower classes. It comes from these people, and that is going to cause a collapse sooner or later. And that wave, can you, if you are able to ride that wave of collapse, you know, that's kind of what capitalism is. But uh, pretty soon, capitalism is, uh, that, that structure has circled the globe many times over, and it's running out of wave pretty soon. It's going to sink right into the sea, just like, uh, just like I usually do when I try to surf, right? So... Uh, and she gets transformed. She's punished, actually, not by being reborn as something bad, but actually by being transformed in this life into a, a half cow, kind of. It's kind of wild. So everyone, her family were horrified. Her husband and children, filled with shame and pity, threw themselves to the ground, making endless vows to atone for her sins. They offered various household treasures to Miki Temple and to Todaiji Temple in Nara. 70 oxen, 30 horses, 50 acres of fields, and 4,000 bundles of rice. Um, well, so the solution is give money to the temples, right? Yeah. Well, 
But we know uh, for certain that there is an immediate pen penalty for unrighteousness and evil. And since the immediate penalty comes as surely as this, how much more so will be that in a future life? Right. One sutra says those who fail to pay their debts will be reborn as horses or cattle as a consequence. The debtor is compared to a slave, the creditor to a master. The debtor is like a pheasant, the creditor like a hawk. Thus, although you may make a loan, do not use excessive force in collecting the debt, for if you do, you will be reborn as a horse or a cow and made to work for your debtor. Avoid this mistake. Yeah. Um, well, that's a little confusing, right? Is it like, okay, do not use excessive force in collecting a debt. If you do, you will be reborn and made to work for your debtor. Okay, so this is like a little reversal of the, the debtor-creditor relationship. Okay, you don't see in a different story, uh, a mysterious cow appears uh, at a temple and they start using it to, to work the fields. And eventually the cow re reveals that actually it was a member of the temple credit union in a previous life who had taken out a loan and failed to pay it back before he died. And so he was reborn as this ox that came and then had to do work at the temple and that paid that back. So you get both sides of that, actually. You can be reborn as a, a work animal because you had a debt, but here it's you're, you'll be reborn as a work animal uh, if you're too mean about collecting a debt, right? So 333, this is another great one. There we go. Uh, so... There was a certain guy from the, uh, and uh, in the, this time in the summer of the fifth month, a provincial official who was making the rounds of the district to hand out loans of government rice came to that district to distribute them to all the peasants. There was a self-ordained monk who was called Ise no Shami, or the novice of Ise, uh, reciting the, 12, the divine names of the 12 generals of the Yakshigyo, or the, the Medicine Buddha Sutra. He went around the village begging for food. Following the official who was distributing rice, he came to the gate of the evil man. At the sight of the novice, the man offered nothing. Instead, scattering the rice he was carrying and stripping him of his surplus, behaving in an overbearing manner, the novice fled, hiding himself in the residential quarters of Wake Temple. The evil man chased him, caught him, and brought him back to his own door. There he, ch he picked up a big stone, took aim at the novice's head, and said, Recite the divine names of the twelve generals and bind me with a charm. The novice refused, but the evil man only pressed him harder. Unable to bear the abuse, the novice recited them once and then ran away. Not long after, the evil man fell to the ground and died. There can be The evil man is the, tax, um, the person giving out rice, right? Um, not the tax collector, although he might have also collected taxes, you never know. Uh, there can be no doubt that the man was punished by the guardian of the Dharma. Although the other man was only a self-ordained monk, he deserved to be treated with a heart of compassion, for there are sages who live hidden among the mass of men. When one is not guilty of any flagrant error, do not blow back the hair searching for hidden defects. If you are looking for shortcomings even among those in the three preliminary stages or the ten stages in the Bodhisattva's ascent, there are those who have some. And if you are looking for virtue, even those who speak ill of the Dharma or block the good have things that are worthy of praise. Uh, yeah, so this continues. Um, basically, uh, there's a bunch of kind of maxims that continue. There's a fascinating one at the end of this, though. Speaking of wealth, it is shared by five parties. 
What are the five parties? First, government officials who might come and demand it unreasonably. Second, robbers who might come to steal it. Third, water, which might wash it away. Fourth, fire, which might burn it up suddenly. And fifth, evil children who might waste it unreasonably and use it up. Therefore, a bodhisattva is delighted to make offerings. So basically, um, you should give your money away because uh, it will be taken from you there from all kinds of causes. And the first thing that takes away money is the state. First thing that takes it away is the state. I think there of uh, the, the parable of the, un, the dishonest steward, right? Jesus says that uh, the children of darkness are cleverer than the children of light. Uh, you should make uh, friends for yourselves with uh, the um, the mammon of unrighteousness, I think it is. Mammon is a god of money in Jewish legend. So make make friends for yourself, and in and then they will they will meet you in the in the next world. That would be something in common with this Buddhist uh, idea. These Buddhist ideas, right? People that you save, or animals, or anything that you save, that um, they'll come to be advocates for you. But this last story, isn't it, isn't it very ambivalent about the state and about sort of the collection of taxes, which is the basis of the division of labor and the rela- relations of production, right? The class division in this feudal society. And then we get another one in, in 335. You have a real statement of directly there's a tax collector in hell. And here again, we find the Nihon Ryoiki really sort of taking the side of the peasants once again. There's a man who has a near-death experience, and in the formulaic way, he sort of says, don't cremate my body right away. And then, sure enough, he's able to like come back uh, again. And uh, he meets a guy on his way back. You know, He's been decided that he's going to get to go back to the, the land of the living. And he's on his way back, and he meets uh, something that looked like a black stump rising and sinking. And as it rose, it spoke to him, saying, wait, it's in a boiling kettle. <laughs> in a hell, it looked like a boiling kettle in the ocean. Wait, I have something to tell you. It sank out of sight, but then as the water boiled, it came up again and said, Wait, I have something to tell you. This was spoken three times, and on the fourth it said, I am Mononobe no Furumaro of the Harihara district of Totomi province. When I was alive, I had charge of handing out hulled rice, working for many years and taking other people's property unrightfully. And in requital for those sins, I am now suffering. I beg you for my sake to copy the Lotus Sutra and offer it, so I may be pardoned from these sins. Seeing this, when the guy who came back to life came back from the land of the dead, he submitted a detailed report to the local government officials. They, receiving it, sent it on to the central government, but the latter did not take it seriously, and therefore the Grand Secretary did not bother to report it to the Emperor, ignoring it for twenty years. When Sugano no Aso Mamichi of the junior fourth rank upper grade was appointed head secretary, he reported it to Emperor Yamabe. The emperor, apprised of this, consulted uh, we living beings uh, with assistant executive monk Sekyo, saying, we living beings in the world, after we suffer for 20 years in hell, are we then released from our suffering? But Sekyo answered, that is only the beginning of their suffering. Why do I say this? Because 100 years in the world equals only one day and one night in hell. That is why he has not yet been released. On hearing this, the emperor clicked with his thumb, he snapped his fingers, indicating dissatisfaction. Yeah, that's a happens in pre-modern Japan. Snap your fingers to indicate, indicate anger. 
um, and sent his messenger to Totomi province to look into Furumaro's activities there. He there he discovered that the report was true. The emperor was grieved at this, and in the 15th year of the Enryaku era, that'd be 796, the third month on the 17th day, he summoned four sutra copiers to copy the Lotus Sutra for the sake of Furumaro. He appointed a devotees association to support this work, inviting the prince, regent, ministers, and officials in number equal to the 69,384 characters of the sutra. The emperor also requested the most venerable Zenju to be lecturer and assistant executive monk Sekyo to be reciter, holding a great service at a private temple in the capital of Nara to recite the sutra, the lotus, and requesting that its merits be applied to release the spirit of Furumaro from suffering. Ah, how foolish Furumaro was, like a fox who borrows a tiger's skin in conducting government affairs to exercise his power unrighteously and thus bring on an evil recompense. He lacked an understanding of the law of karmic causation, and his shallow heart brought on vast grief. The law of karmic causation never fails to work. So, there you go. And then finally, 339 is the final story about these monks being reborn as princes, and it's very, very supportive of Emperor Saga. He even says at one point, uh, you know, there are, there are those who speak ill of him, Emperor Saga, saying he is no sage ruler. Why do we say this? Because in this emperor's reign, the country has seen the plague of drought. And there have been many other heavenly disasters and earthly plagues and famines as well. Moreover, he keeps hunting birds and dogs with which to catch birds, wild boars and deer. No one with a heart of compassion would do such. So this is <laughs> that's a little bit... Uh, funny that he's bringing that out that doesn't seem particularly uh worldly of him to do that but he does um but then he says but these charges are not just everything within the land is the property of the ruler there is nothing that is privately owned so feudalism does not have private property does it there is nothing that is privately owned all is for the use of the ruler as he wishes although we are his people have we the right to criticize him even in the time of the sage rulers yao and shun in china there were still droughts to plague the nation, therefore it does not do to criticize him. Relying on what I have heard, I have selected oral reports and put down a record of good and evil actions, compiling this account of miraculous events. What benefits may accrue from it, I confer on those of the populace who go astray, and I pray that I and they may all be reborn in the western land of bliss. So that would be the, the pure land of, of uh, Amitabha. So that's a little taste of Buddhist folktales. I'm sure that we'll come back to this territory because there's just tons and tons of these. And they're a wonderful place to see class struggle at work in pre-modern Japan. This is the place where you can really, really see it, you know. Uh, and for now, you know, I hope that this would be interesting for uh, any vampire hunters out there to sort of... Uh, you know, because there are some uh, some of you who are very unironically uh, just thinking, you know, not, maybe not even the ones who like host podcasts or even anything, but um, certain people on Twitter can can be very much just like uh, literally the evils of capitalism are directly being plotted and carried out uh, not by the bourgeoisie but by Satan himself, and uh, defeating capitalism will be necessarily mean i guess like everyone converting to catholicism or islam or whatever uh so that 
you know, that I would think would be pretty uh, dogmatic and idealistic. And uh, I would really recommend um, studying a bit more like revolutionary history, revolutionary theory, uh, relations of production in history. Uh, right. Which which some are doing, you know, there's actually some, uh, you know, there's an episode on on Che Guevara recently. One of these um, they're doing it. So that's great. And I encourage that. Uh, that sounds really great. And then to, to people who would be sort of um, on the other side of it, you know, I do not, um, you know, I think it is interesting, like a lot of recent uh, ruling class moves that we've seen. Uh, you definitely see, for example, the, the Chapos and the, the dirtbag left have really come out making making fun of certain people watch watch who they all start making fun of all at once and see if it isn't you know somebody that um that maybe shouldn't be uh should be listened to right um it seems like lately they've been priming us to laugh at and make fun of people who are experiencing food shortages and starving to death you know and there have been people starving to death all along but particularly this winter we're about to have serious food shortages all around the place, and uh, they're priming people to say, "Oh, you didn't get your treats, my little treat boy." You know, I mean, it's like, um, so I would think that you'd really want to uh, think about what are the moves that are happening right now. And no, it's not all just blind class forces just moving in in the ether, right? That's not it. And then on the other side, again, you know, we have some vampire hunters that say things like, uh, oh, you should never join an org or organize or, or anything because COINTELPRO, you know, that we get it. Can people on the so-called conspiracy side saying that, right? Um, I'm going to I'm going to stop saying conspiracy. You know, the, the term conspiracy theory was created by the CIA to discredit uh, people looking into parapolitics and looking into ruling class organizing by the vanguard of the bourgeoisie. So I'm going to call it parapolitics, ruling class organizing, right? Um, people investigating ruling class organizing sometimes will actually be very blackpilled and just sort of say, don't join an org, don't organize because COINTELPRO existed. Uh, but in fact, the the historians that, that really look into this, right? Um, like uh, Aaron J. Leonard, I think, the, the Deep Radicals and um, A Threat of the First Magnitude, they say that their conclusion is that these organizations did a lot of good. They forced a lot of changes uh, at the cost of a lot of people, um, you know, falling in, uh, being being martyred for the cause, you know. Um, I want to encourage, you know, I'm not a, this is not an anti-spirituality podcast at all. Is it? And I chose, sort of named it in this way just to... Um, not because, again, not because I'm a, a Gnostic in the sense of like, um, I, I guess some of the, the occult kind of ruling class uh, people like er Alistair Crowley um, looked at Egyptian artifacts and they got, they got to read a little bit of the early Gnostic texts that were starting to come out. Although the real big Na Naj Hammadi library hadn't come out yet uh, for Crowley, I don't think. Um, but... At any rate, uh, you know, they read little snippets of it and just sort of assumed, oh, it must be like satanic or something, right? Like, it's, I mean, as I said in an earlier podcast, which I can't remember if it was free or not, so I'll say again. Uh, uh, 
it's it's just out of fr- out of phase a little bit. It's like um, we want good, uh, we don't like evil, and uh, but we just think, okay, why is there evil in the world? One answer, our answer to that, and the Gnostic, some Gnostics anyway, mostly Valentinians, right? There's all different kinds of Gnostics too. There's a guide to that in the back of the Nash Hammadi Library, uh, uh, Nash Hammadi Scriptures volume, by the way, so you can you can check that out and, and learn about it. Um, Valentinians in particular. Um, perhaps is it valid? Yeah, they um, believe that uh, the uh, so the the reason why there's evil in the world is that there's a there's some kind of good thing originally, and it's more kind of a unity. Maybe it's more like non-dual. Uh, for Valentinians in particular, it's non-dual. I think, and uh, from this non-duality, there was a kind of fall, and uh, we have uh, the kind of evil demiurge creates the world and then a good kind of savior uh, saves us and the, the it just happens that in orthodox christianity um and then in islam maybe at first anyway um you get uh the cosmic evil cosmic good binary playing out such that there's an original god who is cosmically good then satan who is cosmic evil takes over this world and then you have jesus who is a cosmically good savior to come in and save us from the bad guy, right? It's the same kind of story, but it's just like, where do you, how do you divide up the roles exactly? And what's the chronology and all of this? It's a little different is all. Um, but then, yeah, you get these kind of bourgeois and, and interesting like deep state parapolitical actors, um, interestingly, who are some of the people, first people kind of slinking around uh, Egypt over there, places like this. Uh, in a colonial context, isn't it? So that's interesting. And they're, they're sort of looking at that stuff. In this podcast, we uh, so I can read the Egyptian language as well, um, hieroglyphs and stuff. Um, and I've done a lot of work with like actual Egyptian literature, not like, you know, somebody's magical interpretations of it. Because now we can read the language. We can read the language. And it, it doesn't say all of the things that these, you know, even like Athanasius Kircher, uh, in the 17th century, the German Jesuit who claimed to be able to tell you what the hieroglyph said, he was full of shit. Um, Crowley, I haven't looked into it, but I'm sure he's full of shit, right? Um, he, these people lived before there was a lot of decipherment happening, even, even Crowley probably. Um, so, you know, today we can just read this and we can look at it as an actual living society, right? Um, like Seth, for example, um, whom, uh, Michael Aquino and uh, sort of identifies as Satan in some way. Um, you know, there's just there was a guy Horus and there was a guy Set and they had a fight and they one guy killed the other guy and there's there's a story about that. And then over like a thousand you know thousand years or so that story about these two guys that had a fight like goes across and there are shrines to each of them in different places and you know the guy who killed the other guy is Set. And and he um, become and then the guy who was was killed becomes a, a god who's reborn in some way, and that becomes part of the royal ideology, um, where the king dies and is reborn from the 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 goddess. Right? You have this is a what is it? Um, Osiris, Isis, and Horus. Horus is that. And then, arguably, this is borrowed for the Christian Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? So, yeah, we can look into stuff like that. 
later on. But you've got to understand that the same thing at a totally different time and place in history can just become something completely different. And there's no um, like religious figures too can flip from good guy to bad guy and back again over, you know, the centuries, right? Good guy, bad guy, neutral, just they could start doing completely different things, right? And you can find versions of their stories in this or that place that are different. Over here, they think it's this, and over here, they think it's that. So that's more. We we can look into more stuff like that. I think it'd be great. Um, there's tons of stuff about class struggle, but that move is interesting. And I don't know that it's universal, but that move of taking a story that you like and turning it into a myth and saying, now, oh, this is the basis of all reality. You know, it's just like Jordan Peterson watching like the Disney, some Disney movie and saying, oh, all reality is composed of either Cinderella or Gaston from Beauty and the Beast. And uh, these are the two genders or whatever, you know. This is a kind of... Um, he doesn't talk like that at all, actually, does he? The two genders are Gaston from Beauty and the Beast. Uh, no, but I think there's an, another parapolitical story here, right? I mean, I would encourage you to look up uh, podcasts on the Urantia book, U-R-A-N-T-I-A. This is a very spooky kind of book, sci-fi type book that is sort of based on the Bible, and it it is popular among all kinds of spook connected uh, entertainment world figures and uh, who contribute to the kind of present moment where culturally we have these big intellectual properties like uh, Star Wars and uh, Marvel and whatever. And um, here I'm going to, I'm going to actually recommend it. Chapo, the, the most recent one, um, I don't know. I pirate it, so I don't know if it's free or not. But um, it's uh, they're talking about an, a Marvel movie, the original, the the <laughs> the originals, the uh, Eternals, maybe. Uh, and it's it's Urantian as hell. Actually, that's really interesting. That movie sounds like uh, uh, exactly the kind of thing where I think the there there may be projects. Well, there there are projects to sort of reverse engineer religion itself creating religions. How do we do that? How do we actually make people believe things in a religious kind of way and follow religious type narratives that we create? This is a big part of how the internet is being used. Uh, that's exactly what I think QAnon is. It's one of these projects to sort of engineer a religious belief type belief and manipulate people in, in ways that, that draw on, on things that probably happened mostly accidentally in ancient societies with religion. But one of those moves there is to have a story, you know, like, oh, this one guy, um, this one guy, Set, killed this other guy named Osiris. And, uh, yeah, that was too bad that he did that. So we have a shrine to the one guy to appease, maybe a shrine to Osiris to appease him for, it's too bad you got killed, buddy, right? And then over the centuries that sort of turns into a cosmic principle where it's like the world is composed of particles of Osiris and Set and the war these are the two forces of the universe and um, I don't I don't think that um, Egyptians exactly thought that um, at many times in Egypt in fact um, I think that's that's later that's a later idea that's being projected back onto uh, Egypt at a time when people couldn't read the hieroglyphs yet, 
so we could just fantasize about what they said right oh and one more thing on that while i'm on this topic hermeticism as well is like you know the, the the egyptian ingredients that are in christianity are coming from somewhere but they're not coming from the book of tote i've i just read the egyptian book of tote uh, and it's totally different. It's just like a guild club for scribes, just sort of saying, "Yeah, we have our house of uh, house of life where we do our uh, scribe stuff, and here's all the letters, and Tote is the master of the letters, and um, we need to master them, and you know, let's be good writers together." And it's just like a a guild god, you know, basically. There's nothing in there about eternal principles of. Uh, the cosmos or anything <laughs> so that's stuff that we can look in into as well uh, particularly if patrons are are interested you know we can i would i accept patron requests and and suggestions for future materials but we can look into the actual stuff that um later people including perhaps the satanic vanguard of the bourgeoisie um are projecting whatever ideas they have sort of back onto Right. So with that, yeah, that's my my point is just uh, I don't know if there's going to be many people in, on the dirtbag spectrum with ears to hear, but uh, you know maybe people more kind of uh, in the in people who think that we need a, a revolutionary change in the relations of production, and who are seriously organizing for that. Um, I would encourage you not to discount uh, the question of parapolitical. Um, purposes you know there's a there's real people on the other end of this class struggle thing there's real people up there and they're trying to do real things so it's it's great to listen to people who have read a lot and know a lot about the actual evidence of recent ruling class actions now uh, on, I would ex encourage then the people who are on that side who are doing all this great research and reading all these documents about recent ruling class actions, um, some of you are really doing this, and it's wonderful, but if you're not, uh, look into the history of people who have tried to organize against the ruling class. What have they done? What has worked? What has not worked? Uh, what are they doing right now? Where, do, where are they right now? What countries are doing, you know, um, without... Uh, yeah, just look into those things. Check that out too, right? We need a union. We need both of these things, I think. And we need both vision. We need belief, don't we? We need sacrifice. If you really want to achieve your vision, you might have to lay down your life in, in whatever kind of way, right? You probably always do to really achieve a vision, to really get something done in this in this life. We only have so much time. We only have so much power and energy. Uh, but if we commit to it, uh, and if we are humble and open-minded and uh, scientific in our efforts as well, we try to test and um, try and and keep and and change our change our ways, our views as we go. Uh, but we also hold on to our principles. We also hold on to our principles and our vision. Right, all of these things are necessary. I think. All these things are necessary. And, and so the insight that uh, the major world religions may be the dead husks of revolutionary thought uh, should not discourage you. It should tell you that, hey, this is many times this struggle has played out. Uh, and as I was saying earlier, you know, from the, the Wengro Graeber new book, 
there's this great idea that there actually have been many, many um, stateless, classless societies, and they weren't uh, they weren't just the original unfallen pure state of humanity. They were won. They were hard won by people who committed themselves and dedicated themselves and fought to create them. And we can do that too. To build the kingless generation, or whatever you want to call it. So with that, I am Fergal Schmudlock, and I have anointed you with the anointing of the kingless generation. はなれてゆくよ恋の港よいつまた会えるはんとしすぎてまた会う日までみんな達者でいておくれ船は行く船は行くさよならみんなと